For nearly 10 years, Garth Payne has crossed the rocky landscape of Joshua Tree National Park to reach one of his favorite recording spots, Barker Dam. He'd lie on the ground in the summer heat while his recorder captured his sonic environment. And I like to record for two to three hours at a time. And what that does is it really connects me to the kind of energy of the place. Payne is an acoustic ecologist. He uses sound to get a richer understanding of an environment. And on one such trip, what he heard surprised him. This familiar recording site, he says, was completely transformed. And so what I ended up recording and listening to many times as that water stayed there for some time was, you know, an entire ecosystem that I'd never heard there before. Welcome back to the Undark Podcast. I'm Lydia Chain. We've got a lot of great stories lined up for this season, and I'm excited to share them with you. Just a quick note, whenever possible, our reporters used best social distancing practices to record in-person tape. And where that wasn't possible, they used phone and internet interviews to keep themselves and their sources safe. Back to the show. Improvements in audio processing and recording equipment have allowed scientists unprecedented insight into the soundscapes of the planet. But the field has been born into a world already in the middle of a changing climate. Some acoustic ecologists are attempting to generate the data necessary to answer deep questions about how the environment and its inhabitants are changing. And others are using sound to address specific conservation issues or to politically engage communities. And some are rushing to capture as many soundscapes as possible before they're gone forever. Adam Baffa has the story. Months before Payne captured that transformed ecosystem at Barker Dam, Unusually heavy rains filled the dam's reservoir, drawing in birds, frogs, and insects he'd never heard there before. You know, things have been so crazy that that patterns have become much more chaotic. Normally, there's like either that dam is either dry or it has a tiny little puddle of water. And, you know, everybody else was like, oh, well, we haven't seen water here for, you know, decades. Payne co-founded the Acoustic Ecology Lab at Arizona State University in 2015. And he says there's a lot to learn from a place's soundscape. Sound describes the environment in really detailed ways. And I mean, every animal within that ecosystem has a sonic niche and every environment therefore has a kind of cumulative sonic signature. And that signature is made up of all of the species that are present there. The physical environment, things like air temperature, foliage density, building materials, or the composition of rock formations also contributes to that sonic signature by changing the way sound travels and reverberates. And of course, non-living things like running water or thunder also shape the sound of an environment. Acoustic ecology as a field is just beginning to explore and quantify Earth's soundscapes and apply that knowledge to environmental health problems. But the rich variety of sounds available to study has already started to transform. The time to record and analyze some of the planet's most diverse and important soundscapes may be running out, and scientists are rushing to find the best ways to research and understand the planet's changing ecosystems.
Payne likes to use the example of declining Joshua trees to explain what a change in a soundscape can reveal. Over the last few years, a malignant fungal disease, invasive grasses, wildfires, and climate-related heat stress and lack of water have all contributed to a clear and notable reduction of Joshua trees in the park, he says. And the Joshua trees are the principal uh, larger plant life there. And so plant life and foliage generally absorbs a lot of sound. And so if you think about the, the fact that the foliage and the, the Joshua trees might be reduced, then in fact the reverberation qualities in that environment will change over time. Joshua trees absorb and redirect sound frequencies, which affects what other species hear and thus how they might behave. So if there are fewer trees, there might be consequences for other animals in the ecosystem. And it could be actually that through these processes, those environments become less suitable as habitat for species who are currently there because increased reverberation might mean, for instance, that predators can't really quite hear exactly where the prey is, um, that animals can't communicate well enough, you know, during breeding season or just for general survival, and they might have to move. Acoustic ecology can provide an unusually fast way to grasp these kinds of changes as they happen. Amandine Gask works at the French National Research Institute for Sustainable Development, a public agency. There, she uses acoustic ecology and conservation efforts and to monitor ecosystems that have been disturbed or disrupted in some way. For example, the spread of Basmania auropunctata, the electric ant or little fire ant. So it's a small ant, but very invasive in New Caledonia and in other parts of the world as well. Uh, what happened is like the ant is like spreading and affects a lot of the local fauna. So the local fauna disappear, especially like crickets are very abundant. So when the ant is here, the ant kind of silences the, the forest. Because crickets, we show that crickets in this environment are responsible for 85% of the acoustics in the night, at nighttime in the forest. So it's just like a, a group that contributes a lot. Here's what they sound like. So when they are not there, you for sure hear it. Like you hear it super silent. When ants invade, the chorus of crickets dims to a few lone voices. Other ecologists had already documented the way these ants kill off native insects in other places. What acoustic ecology offered Gask and her peers was a quick, easy, non-disruptive way to recognize their presence in New Caledonia. Traditionally, to have information of the animal community, you have to do inventories of species. So for you need experts in every taxonomic group, and you need to go uh, on the place, and most of the time you need to collect the species to be able to recognize them. Um, so it's a, actually a very difficult work and requires a lot of human time on the field. Gask says that pairing acoustic ecology with established research lets her team quickly spot discrepancies in soundscapes so they can make a conservation plan. But applying those techniques to the largest conservation problem, climate change, has some unique challenges. If a soundscape changes as weather, temperature, and animal activities change... That, of course, changes across the seasons. Um, but it also changes over time with climate impacts. So you might get more of one species or less, or you might get species that didn't used to be there. 
Um, so, you know, you're hearing calls that perhaps are not common. And over time, that might become more common. But making definitive claims about exactly what is changing typically requires years of observation and heaps of data. That's a challenge for an emerging field like acoustic ecology. Yeah, I think this field is too uh, recent. Like, it doesn't have the enough data to do scientific analysis and statistically show that, okay, yes, we are sure that, you know, this change like this or this change like that. So um, I think people, some scientists or people interested in the field, like, observed it along their life, but we don't have the data to, like, prove it through the scientific methodology right now. Scientific methodology requires even the most seemingly obvious claim to be thoroughly backed up by evidence. And for many acoustic ecology projects, that data just isn't there yet. So, so we're pretty sure that it's changing. There is no way that the sound doesn't change, but the species are. Like, it's for sure goes with the species that are like locally like shifting and changing. But we don't have data to like support or like show any any results right now. But a lot of people are trying like to put like long term term project right now to like have it in like thirty years maybe or fifty years uh, enough data to show the changes in an acoustic environment. Building that kind of database is one of the goals in Payne's lab. There are a few studies with that historical data which show the sort of insight the field could provide into how ecosystems will change under the pressures of climate change. While pursuing her doctorate in ecology and evolutionary biology at Rice University, Shannon Carter joined a project where researchers had recorded the sound around eight ponds in northeast Texas every year since 2000. At the time, that gave her 15 years' worth of frog mating calls. There were a lot of fundamental ecological questions that we didn't know anything about, and that was the main motivation of originally installing the recorders. According to Carter, these frog ponds are ideal habitats for acoustic ecologists. They don't move, and the frogs return to them year after year. So recording devices placed there can be expected to provide reliable audio. And the sounds frogs make serve a purpose. So frogs um, call when they're breeding. Using um, the frog calls is a really neat proxy for this biological event. The calling of the species indicates they're reproducing and that their offspring are going to be in the environment a short time afterwards. Each species' reproduction is timed to specific environmental cues. And so historically, these frogs would call like one species in early May, next species late May, and kind of like have the sequence where one came after the other. And this reduces competition between their offspring. But with changes in temperature and rainfall patterns, this rhythm can become disrupted. And frog species struggle to separate their mating seasons. One of the big things that we pulled out of this data was that they're not doing that as well anymore, um, partly because the availability of resources is getting more pulsed um, because of how the patterns of uh, rain in, in East Texas. So now we're seeing, okay, these species that used to call one after the other are all calling at the same time of year now. And that means that all of their tadpole offspring are going to be in the pond at the same time competing with one another. That disruption has a big impact. We're going to see much lower survival and probably fewer frogs the next year, lower recruitment. Though Carter's research looked specifically at frogs, she says that behavioral changes in response to climate change have been observed in other species, many of which rely on each other. But there isn't always uniformity to these changes. As these different behaviors fall out of sync, the effects multiply, which can create existential problems for the viability of an ecosystem. So since not all species are responding the same way, we're seeing a lot of important ecosystem interactions getting disrupted. And this can lead to um, kind of a cascade throughout 
food chains and ecosystems where um, we see kind of uh, reverberating effects through, through natural systems. The cascading impacts of ecological change that Carter describes can eventually mean the loss of entire soundscapes, sometimes permanently. The disappearance of natural sounds is a phenomenon David Manaki has studied for almost two decades. Manaki is a professor at the Conservatorio Rossini in Pesaro, Italy, and he launched the Fragments of Extinction project in 2002. He worked with Greenpeace on an initial field recording trip to the Amazon, where he hoped to document remote rainforest habitats, areas that posed challenges for travel and for his recording equipment. He says the soundscape made an immediate impression on him. He saw evolution acting as a composer of ecological symphonies. So the, the project from the beginning was called Fragments of Extinction, because we are really aware of, of doing a minimum of the richness of the incredible variety of species and of ensembles of species of acoustic situations that you can find. Over time, though, Monaki realized that his recordings might be the only surviving documentation of these sounds before pressures like climate change and deforestation took their toll. We sampled uh, soundscapes in, in, in Central Africa and the Congo Basin in, in several areas. In, uh, in the Amazon, uh, in Borneo, and then back in the Amazon again. Then we are going now in Sumatria and West Papua to do some more work. Here's a sample of a recording made in Malaysia in 2012. are starting to have a collection of uh, what's uh, changing while we're talking. Manaki notes, for example, that recordings made in the Amazon back in 2002 might be impossible to replicate today. Habitat loss and extinctions mean that some of those sounds might not exist there in the same way anymore. But he doesn't feel the need to check that those sounds have been lost. There's not any more time to confirm. We know that the extinction crisis is profound and severe and will be more severe as uh, soon as climate changes will, will progress. Even if we had those data, we are only confirming what everybody is saying, that the extinction crisis is going on. His focus, then, is not on collecting data to track changes in an individual environment, but instead on capturing what's there now, before it's gone. He calls it a kind of sonic archaeology. We are not doing a quantitative analysis to trace environmental changes, species changes, ecological and ecoacoustics changes in the environments we record. We are making heritage. We are trying to do as soon as possible in as many places as possible with priority into places which are completely primary, completely undisturbed, and historically never touched, completely free of human noises and disturbances. Payne and ASU's Acoustic Ecology Lab co-founder, Sabine Feist, hope to encourage awareness of these issues by engaging the local community. Here's Feist. And so it's not a specialist task, you know, acoustic ecology. It Everybody can practice and everybody can experience 
climate change and everybody can you know actually hear uh, how things are changing another benefit of bringing acoustic ecology into the community is the creation of field recordings at a bigger scale thanks to the help of local volunteers these efforts amount to terabytes and terabytes of audio data from the surrounding areas according to Payne. the database he hopes can eventually contribute to studies of climate change Recent advances in portable recording devices have made this a more accessible prospect. It's easier to get more audio and at a much higher quality than ever before. But there's still a gap between what your average smartphone can capture and what's needed for research. At the Acoustic Ecology Lab, they employ more specialized equipment. But also we use a recording process called ambisonic recording. Ambisonic recording uses four microphone capsules to record a, a full sphere of sound. And a key reason for that is that if we're looking for changes in the recording um, over time, um, if we were recording just a stereo pair pointing in the same direction every time, all of the key changes might occur behind us. It's not just the recording itself. How it's captured and how that data is analyzed still requires specialized knowledge. Here's Gask. And also I think passing the methodology to other people like the knowledge is not that easy it's easy to understand like the global idea of it but how to use it it's not that easy like the protocol the standardization of the measurements all of that is very necessary for people to work together like also to have like the same tools to work and share like the results and comparable results there's also the issue of how to turn all this raw audio into something more manageable and comprehensible Regular recording projects might eventually accumulate hundreds or thousands of hours of audio. Here's Carter. We had somebody listen to all of this and process and identify the species manually. So we have 48 minutes of audio each day times 365 days times 20 years. It sums up to days and days and days of audio recordings that um, my collaborator processed all on his own and listened to each minute and identified which species was calling. He did it piecewise as it was coming through. I mean, several times a year would listen to everything up to that point. Software can help automate the analysis of that data, but not entirely. It's a big bottleneck in the process. And there are some things to kind of shorten it, like he can use software to skip through the quiet parts. You know, I say it's passive data collection, you're still having to spend massive, massive amounts of time on the other end to, to process. Once that data is collected, acoustic ecologists often try to find ways to share it with a wider audience. Some use their recordings for creative work or share them for public listening and use. Feist came to acoustic ecology from a musicology background and believes she has a responsibility to use her work for political and community engagement. You wonder, you know, can I just continue doing what I have been doing when the world is on fire, you know, and do we have something to bring to the table? And maybe we have more power as musicians and music scholars than scientists who can, of course, collect data and then present the data in charts and so forth. But people are not touched by it or they are overwhelmed and in their helplessness, just kind of close their eyes and ears. Manaki has used his recordings to create surround sound installations that people can visit. Inside, Manaki tries to create spaces that approximate the feeling of being in and listening to a rainforest. I had the, um, the need to, to bring back uh, to people 
these soundscapes because uh, putting yourself in headphone and uh, uh, pretending to be in a forest is something very different than to build an environment around the audience where the forest can really uh, acoustically live, uh, breathe. To do this, Manaki and his collaborators start by creating field recordings with 38 specialized microphones that also record data regarding the location and distance of sounds. These 38 tracks are then played back through a variety of large speakers in a spherical venue called the Ecoacoustic Theater. Like Feist and Payne, Manaki believes that experiencing these sounds might help people reconnect with and more deeply appreciate the natural world, which, they hope, could later inspire political action. Uh, the fact that life on Earth is uh, quickly, quickly, very quickly disappearing is, is not going into the first pages of the, of the, of the newspapers as it, it should be. So, uh, so if, if there is a role, a social role and political role, is this one, is to bring straight portraits to the people and to say, should we do whatever we can as fast as possible, to save as much as possible. But outside of that, Manaki sees another, more immediate utility to his work. The unavoidable reality, he says, is that time is running out for people to hear certain soundscapes firsthand. Within decades, a significant portion of the biodiversity of this planet could disappear and its sounds will follow. The aim of, of Fragments of Extinction is to have something in our hands to give to our nephews and say, hey guys, this is what nature produced in the acoustic world of its complex ecosystem behavior over the last millions of years. To give to our future generations a possibility to, to immerse themselves into something that was uh, as near as possible to the original configuration of acoustic signals of, of an acoustic ecosystem uh, of a primary forest before the expected severe changes of climate change, which are right now happening. Adam, thanks for bringing us this story and for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Audio ecology is one way of looking at an ecological space. How does it dovetail with more traditional methods? I think, um, you know, particularly for a field that's relatively new, like acoustic ecology, and as some of the people that we interviewed mentioned, there just isn't quite the volume of data yet to make some of the same conclusions that other fields have already established. But as a result, they can often sort of work together. They can sort of lean on each other a little bit. And so you have, for example, Dr. Payne talking about the Joshua trees. And a lot of that research isn't exclusively found through sound studies. It's through a combination of observation in other fields. So by that, you mean studies that look at weather data or behavioral observations of the creatures that live there or analyses of species makeup, those kinds of things? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I think they try to find ways to... Uh, add nuances or things that maybe aren't able to be um, found in those fields either. So there's sort of a little bit of um, a kind of necessary interdependence there um, in order to make some of the more perhaps bold or novel claims that uh, the field is trying to, to produce. You've mentioned that this is a relatively new field. How did it come about? Where are its roots? So yeah, my understanding is that it, it really starts in 
the late 60s, and in particular, this, uh, this name, like the title of acoustic ecology, is rooted in, there was a, there's a university in Canada where uh, researchers were starting to develop these ideas around the sort of interplay and the dynamics between like human-generated sound and then sound that came from the natural world. And they were concerned about, are there impacts of human-generated sound, you know, things like noise pollution? Are there impacts of those sounds on other species? And also, are there impacts on people, like human, human communities? And as they started to figure these things out, you know, many of these people had backgrounds in not just the sciences, but also the creative fields or the humanities. They were interested not just in scientific solutions, but social solutions as well, policy sol- solutions, uh, community-based initiatives, that sort of thing. Uh, and so there's very much a focus over the years on maintaining acoustic ecology as a kind of umbrella term, as a very big tent, so that it encourages people coming in from um, artistic fields, uh, creative fields, uh, you know, policy, all that sort of stuff. That's something I noticed in the piece as well. You have some sources very interested in answering specific scientific questions and others, like Feist, with hopes of using sound for more political engagement. Can you elaborate on that intersection between the disciplines? I think because of those those roots, because of its foundations, it has always been a field that has been interested in um, extending its uh, reach beyond, you know, the sort of the typical academic institutions or, or whatever you might call it. Um, it's very much been about trying to find ways to engage people um, where they are, sort of locally, um, engaging them with the, the soundscapes that are around them. And then also it's trying to facilitate uh you know, collaboration within disciplines. So sometimes that means trying to work on policy proposals. Sometimes that means working on artistic projects or, you know, collaborative sound installations, that sort of thing. Uh, And so if you were to go and look and see what acoustic ecologists are up to online or whatever, that sort of thing, you would often find a lot of creative works or you would find people who are doing things that are not necessarily about quantitative, uh, like audio data analysis. Again, very intentionally, it's very intentionally designed to be um, a, a broad field. And um, I think they're interested in, they're often interested in trying to find the ways that the science and the humanities sort of overlap or intersect or, or potentially benefit each other. That's their hope, I think. Adam Baffa is a writer and musician from New Jersey. Thanks to all of our sources that provided tape to illustrate this piece. Our theme music is produced by the Undark team, and additional music comes from Kevin McLeod at Incompetech. I'm your host, Lydia Chain. See you next month.